3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're here with us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. It is Thursday, the 4th of August. Uh, Good morning, Leela. Good morning, Priya. How are you going today? Um, Well, I was just having the thought that I would drink coffee in any form. Someone served it to me, probably even out of a shoe or a dog bowl. Amazing. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I think I watched a a video where somebody baked a cake in a dog bowl. So anything is really possible. Uh, I don't want to reveal too much about myself. Um, I was also thinking this morning, I, I'm so fascinated by people who change their coffee order on a whim, not just when their order isn't available, but who's like, I'm just going to have a latte today. I'm having a cappuccino tomorrow. I wish I could be that whimsical. Anyway, trying to bring that energy today into today's show. Uh, we've got heaps on as usual, and hopefully we're going to be able to integrate uh, something a little special um considering the tragic passing of Uncle Archie Roach, who is such an important part of the Fitzroy community and uh, who's meant a lot to a lot of people at 3CR. So we'll be playing some of his hits throughout the show today and want to send our uh, our love and our condolences uh, to uh, his family and also to all people, uh, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are uh, grieving him at this time. So first up, we're going to hear Anya Saravanan speaking with Ayan Shirwa from Diaspora Blues about the Justice Map Project and their work challenging carceral narratives and over-policing. And Anya is a Tamil woman and community lawyer working in summary crime and family violence, and we're going to be hearing that interview across two segments. And then after that, we're going to be joined by Dr. Benjamin Cook, who's a senior lecturer at RMIT's Center for Urban Research, and he joins us to discuss the Albanese government's commitment to protect 30% of Australia's land and waters by 2030, what this actually means and why it needs to go further. Now, the government's commitment to this target was reaffirmed by Minister for the Environment and Water, Tanya Plibersek, alongside last month's launch of the five-yearly State of the Environment report. And Ben and several colleagues recently co-authored an article in the conversation breaking down the 30 by 30 target, which we'll be linking in the show notes. So really interested to see what comes out of that conversation, because uh, as we saw yesterday, the Greens have also just announced that they're backing Labor's 43% emissions reduction target, uh, which uh, has been described by environmental groups as not going far enough. And then in recognition of Homelessness Week this week, we will be speaking to Reggie Chang. Youth homelessness remains an urgent issue in Victoria. With poor access to housing and rising rent prices, young people leaving out-of-home care are particularly vulnerable. Reggie joins us today to share their experience of homelessness after leaving care, as well as their role with the Centre for Excellence and Child and Welfare. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really keen to hear that as well, because I think... Um, It really ties into some of what we've been talking about over the past few weeks about homelessness and housing. And um, 
As uh, actually just to link onto that, a Homeless in Hotels second episode airs today. So last week was their premiere, and the second episode of this three-part series is airing on 3CR at 12 p.m. So make sure that you catch that as well, and uh, maybe we'll play a little bit about what that is on. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm on 3CR 855am Homeless in Hotels a 3CR supporter These are the news headlines for Thursday the 20 whoop, the 4th where <laughs> in the future <laughs> the 4th of August the Queensland government has admitted that it has continued to use spit hoods on minors, with at least one child being subjected to the, de- to the device in the last 12 months. In a Wednesday budget estimates hearing, Queensland police confirmed that while alternatives are being explored, they have used spit hoods on children aged 10 to 17 at least eight times since 2019. The device has been widely condemned, including by Greens MP for Maiwa Michael Berkman, who noted serious issues including the disproportionate use of spit hoods on First Nations people. Berkman has called on the Queensland Labor government to ban their use in the state in the state in line with most other jurisdictions, with the South Australian ban most recently legislated in November 2021. Queensland and the Northern Territory are the only two Australian jurisdictions that continue to use the devices on minors, despite their description as inhumane by the 2017 Royal Commission into the Protection and Detention of Children in the Northern Territory. In other news, Wurungu Kokatha Gubernman and AFL legend Eddie Betts has received an apology from Adelaide Crows Chief Executive Tim Silvers in the wake of disturbing revelations detailing the operations of a cult-like player training camp in Betts' recently released autobiography. The camp, supposedly designed to increase player aggression and success on the field, appropriated aspects of First Nations cultural practices, as well as utilizing personal and intimate details about players' lives during activities. Betts described feeling brainwashed after attending the camp on the Gold Coast in 2017. However, after voicing his discomfort with the playing group, including concerns for younger Indigenous players, he was removed from the Crows' leadership team. Silvers offered a statement in a press conference yesterday afternoon noting the club's regret and personally apologizing to Betts and other players who had a, quote, negative experience throughout the camp, end quote. The AFL Players Association is set to open a new investigation into the camp after these revelations, given that previous investigations were cleared by the AFL's Integrity Unit and Safe Work South Australia. The AFL and Safe Work South Australia confirmed on Wednesday that they would not be reopening investigations into the camp. 
And finally, in, no, in local news, members of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, or RAFU, have unanimously decided to pursue a public campaign and industrial action against Reading's books this week. The decision comes in the wake of Reading's decision on Tuesday to renege on an in-principle agreement with RAFU which included increasing pay rates in accordance with the 4.6% rise to minimum award wages announced by the Fair Work Commission from July 1, 2022. Readings has instead insisted that base rates will be frozen for at least the next two years. The union has been involved in the in extended negotiations with Readings Management regarding the establishment of a fair enterprise bargaining agreement for workers. RAFU's first public action will be outside Readings Carlton this coming Saturday, the 6th of August at 10 a.m. And those were your news headlines for Thursday, the 4th of August. I'm, I apologize for not changing that up in the, uh, in the document for headlines, but yeah. Absolutely a lot on and, uh, you know, RAFWU members are encouraging people to get to that action if you can. And we'll have a link to uh, to that action in our show notes as well uh, so that you can find out more and, and head along in solidarity. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQA plus communities and meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pen at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information and to hear our podcast episodes, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash pxfana, spelt P-X-W-H-A-N-A-U. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we're going to jump into a track by Archie Roach. This is from his first album, Charcoal Lane. This is Down City Streets, hopefully a familiar one to some of you. And once again, we send our deepest condolences to his family and just want to acknowledge the massive impact that he's had on this entire country. Down city streets, I would roll 
no bed, I had no home. Crawled out of bushes early morning. Used newspapers to keep me warm. Then I'd have to score a drink. Start me up, help me to think. Down city streets, I would roll. Use my fingers as it goes. In those days, when I was young. Drinking and fighting was no fun. It was daily living for me. I had no choice. It was meant to be. Down city streets, I would go. I had no more. There was nothing that I owned. Used my fingers as it goes. Now I'm a man. I'm not alone. I am married. I have children of my own. Now I have something I call my own. These are my children, and this is my home. I look around and understand how street kids feel. When they're put down Down to the streets I would go I had no bed I had no home If there was nothing That I Listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and that was Down City Streets by Archie Roach off his first album Charcoal Lane. Um, and look, we're going to go into our first 
uh, our first segment for today. So that is a conversation between Anya Saravanan with Ayan Shirwa from Diaspora Blues about the Justice Map Project and their work challenging carceral narratives and over-policing. Anya is a Tamil woman and community lawyer working in summary crime and family violence. And we're going to be listening to that interview in two parts. So here is part one of the interview. Today we have Anya Saravanan from Justice Map. Anya is a Tamil woman and community lawyer working in the areas of summary crime and family violence. I visited Anya over the weekend to learn more about Justice Map and what they're doing to challenge carceral narratives. And later in the show, we'll hear a beautiful conversation between Kushi and her father, Sunny. It's a gorgeous, intimate look into migration, culture, and, believe it or not, culinary skills. You're going to love it. But first up, my interview with Anya. Hi, Anya. Welcome to Diaspora Blue. Thank you, Ayan. I'm so pleased to be here. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, my name is Anya. I have been a community lawyer for about six years now. Um, I also do a bit of work with 3CR, and I'm currently working on a podcast called Queer Brood, which is about all the ways queer people make families. That sounds amazing. <laughs> and you've done a few interviews so far. Yes, I have. Yeah, It's all very exciting. I don't want to give too much away, but... Um, I guess the podcast is about the ways queer people make families which don't fit into a particular mould that we know or just to explore all the different ways chosen families come about. Mm. I mean, the reason I asked you that question is because I feel like it's very relevant to the conversation today, which is about uh, the initiative Justice Map. And mm. Justice Map is really big on challenging narratives, mm. and I feel like that's what you're doing. Totally. Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so my next question is a two-parter. Mm. One, why did you get in, into law, mm. and is it what you expected? Yeah. I think it's a really interesting question at this point in my life because I have been a lawyer for the last six years, but actually at this point in time I'm going to be doing something else. And... So it's a nice moment for me to have a bit of time to reflect on how being in the law has been um, and what are the highs and lows, I guess. So that's a really good question. Um, I got into law initially, I suppose, as a way to contribute back to my community. I'm an Indian woman. I'm an Indian Tamil woman. And in my community, there's quite a high... Um, incidents of family violence, which we don't really talk about, and a lot of women um, face that silently, and nobody really knows how the legal system can help them out. So that's sort of my initial aim, to get into law school, be a lawyer, and help my community and other communities in whatever ways I can. And then sort of around the third year or fourth year of law school, I was really disillusioned because there was lots of talk on clerkships and corporate jobs, and I just knew, firstly, that I wouldn't fit, and secondly, I wouldn't be very good at it, because if I'm not interested in something, then I do a really bad job at it. (laughs) It's just who I am. And so I was like, oh, maybe being a lawyer is not for me. I don't know what else to do. Um, And then in my final year, I did a placement at a community legal centre, and that's when I sort of knew this is what I want to do, that, you know, working with community directly, working on all these sort of maybe little issues, um, but it impacts people in such a wide variety of ways and people with multiple disadvantages and intersecting disadvantages. And so that's when I decided if I ever become a lawyer, I was going to be a community lawyer, um, working in a community legal centre. And I've been fortunate enough to get a variety of jobs in that sector. 
And I would say mostly it's been a great experience. It's been what I expected. It's been working with people who really have so many issues and problems in their life, which is it's a bit of a structural thing, I would say. So, you know, clients who face poverty and racism and all sorts of different vulnerabilities. I mean, I kind of hate the term vulnerabilities, but at this point my mind is blank, so I'm just going to use it. Um, Why do you hate that term, vulnerabilities? I don't know. It makes it sound like it's their fault for being vulnerable or like not being resilient enough or something, where it's actually really the oppressive structures around them that put them in that position. And a lot of these folks are sort of born into it, are pushed into it, and then they can't get out, and then somehow it's made out to sound as if they did it to themselves, if that sort of makes sense. Working in the community legal sector has been what I expected. I think what I didn't really expect is, I think, the the sort of treatment that I would encounter in the system. So I think the law itself is a very boys' club sort of a situation. Mm. So being a woman in law is difficult as it is, and a lot of women have been doing excellent work in that space. But I think being a woman of colour is an extra layer added to it that maybe we're not very good at talking about still. Um, But it's things like, you know, going to court dressed in your blazer and your heels and still being called a client or being mistaken for a client immediately, maybe because you look... You know, maybe because your skin colour is the same as other people in court or whatever. And that's not to say that I'm ashamed of being mistaken for a client. That's not it at all. But it's just, you know, how many people would go into court and be assumed as a client, you know? Mm. And I think initially I was very good at sort of brushing it off. But over time, it takes a bit of toll on you. And the other thing that I also didn't expect was individually the stories of most clients are quite hard and you sort of... Uh, expect to be emotionally affected and you you know put support systems around and all of that is good but I think cumulatively you start to realize how much the system is so set up against your clients Mm. that you often feel like you're not doing enough or you're sort of I don't know banging your head against the wall Mm. trying to change something that's so set in stone that you can't you're like chipping away yeah it's kind of hard to see the result because you're still going yeah And often you don't really even have time to focus on larger advocacy efforts or something because the individual stories are so, you know, it takes up so much of your time and you want to do a good job for a client. But at the end of the day, you know that there are certain things that you can't ever change. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Maybe you can hold that thought because I feel like the next question ties to it. So my ideas about the criminal justice system is based on what the media, the mass media has put out. And I feel like I always get it wrong when I speak to you know friends who are lawyers and they're like, yeah, that's not really the case. Mm. What are some misconceptions that we have about the criminal justice system? Mm. And then I'll get you to follow that up with what are the facts? Yeah, I think most people think that the criminal justice system, the term itself, criminal justice, is a bit of a funny one because there's no justice in the system. There's no justice in imprisoning people. I think in law school, when you learn about the criminal justice system, prisons are are there. They're just one part of the system. There's no questioning of whether they should be there, what are their foundations, Uh, What sort of people are put in prison? Why are they there? Is it actually working? You never ask these sorts of questions. You just assume um, that bad people go to prison. And that's how it is. And um, that can never be changed. So I think it 
for me personally, it took a lot of work to reframe that. Um, I must say, I I am an Indian woman. I'm you know a minority, but not the kind of minority that will probably be pulled over while driving. And I don't have personal experience with prison. I don't have family members who've been to prison. So all of it is quite theoretical to me. Mm. Um, so I think for me personally, it took a lot of reframing to understand why the the issue of incarceration is more layered than what people make it out to be. Mm. I think the general discourse in public is that people go to prison, and if you don't want to go to prison, be a good person. And <laughs> it's just so simplistic, right? Like, what, what does that even mean? And I think people assume that everyone's on the same level of wealth and, you know, sort of generational advantage, you know, good mental health, everyone has stable housing, everyone has enough food to eat, no one's affected by family violence. If all of that is true, then maybe you could say, you know, then if you go out and commit a crime, uh, then that's on you, maybe. Even then it's a bit problematic. But the reality is that that's not true. People who go to prison often have multiple intersecting disadvantages like poverty. Um, I think at the Justice Map we found out that the number is 99% of women in prison have been um, survivors of family violence. Mm. And when you have all of that happening in your life, then at some point, if you make a mistake, then the right thing to do is to figure out how to help you mm. not make that mistake again and fix these other issues around you, give you more you know, money, give you more food to eat, try and find you a safe refuge from your, from your partner who's beating you up, you know. Um, and I think that's a lot harder for people to understand or accept because there's this, I guess, it's a kind of safety mechanism for people to think, I'm good, I'm mm. never going to be the kind of person who commits a crime, mm. and then you do. Right. And a lot of people who commit a crime for the first time often come to me saying, actually, I'm not like that. These are my circumstances. This was a mistake. And it's just, well, that's that's how it is for most people. Yeah. But you finally understand what it feels like to be on that side of, of the table. Exactly. And mm. I feel like there are certain communities who are who have more of an intimate experience, mm. whether it's not, even if it's not them, mm. they have family members, they have friends. Like for me, I've never had any contact with the criminal justice system, but I have family and friends and, you know, people in the community. And I know that what we've been taught to believe about the criminal justice system is it what it is. Mm. And it's scary because you like to think everyone has the same equal access to, to the law and sometimes who you are, where you're from family trauma, all that plays a fact, Absolutely. plays a um, role in your circumstances. Um, but yeah, no, thank you so much for contextualising the issue. Um, so the next question is, because there's a link between, and I feel like you've kind of alluded to it, but there's a link between poverty and the criminal justice system. Um, I'd love for you to talk about that and also the welfare system. How does it criminalise the poor? Mm. I think, I don't know the statistics off by heart, but there is some research done, or maybe heaps of research, my apologies if there has been, about how people facing homelessness are imprisoned at a really alarmingly high rate. And I suppose, I mean, you know, just very, very simplistically, if you don't have anywhere to stay and if you're on the streets and you're trying to survive then of course you're going to be 
committing crimes, you know, like stealing food to survive. How else would anyone survive if the welfare system is more resourced and gave people homes to stay in and gave people more money to buy and eat food? then why would people steal food? It's not an offence that is sexy or something, you know? It's it's quite demeaning for a lot of people yeah. to have to accept that they did it and now they have to explain to the magistrate the entire backstory of why they're, they're here now. And then what are the next steps? Say, you know, you find them or you put them on a good behaviour bond or, you know, maybe in extreme cases they might go to jail if it's coupled with other issues. And then what? They go to jail, they come out, and they still don't have a home to go to. They still don't have food to eat. And then the cycle continues. So unless we break the cycle of poverty and give people a safe place to stay and more money to live their lives, then of course they're going to go back to that same lifestyle. But nobody does it for fun. It's purely survival. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Anya. We will be back with more after this short community announcement. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was part one of a conversation between Anya Saravanan and Ayan Shirwa from Diaspora Blues speaking about the Justice Map Project and their work challenging carceral narratives and over-policing. Now, before we go to part two, we're going to head to a track. This is Beggar Man off Archie Roach's album, Looking for Butter Boy.
heard Beggar Man by Archie Roach and now we will be returning to the conversation about the justice map between Anya and Ayan. And you are listening to Diaspora Blues, a 3CR radio program. In this next half of my interview with Anya, Anya gives us an insight into the brilliant work being done at Justice Map. So you are with Justice Map. Firstly, what is Justice Map? And can you tell me a bit about your role and the kind of work that you're trying to put out into the world? I got involved with the Justice Map because a very good friend of mine, Rachel, is in it. She's um, a senior strategic advisor, I think is the role. I could be wrong. Sorry, Rachel. Um, And she sort of explained that the project was set up a couple of years ago to map the the prison system um, because we are facing a crisis of mass incarceration, over-policing and over-criminalisation. And so the justice map is set up to figure out how the prison system is funded and how it works um, all over the country so that we can figure out how to end the crisis. Um, And so I joined the justice map, I think I want to say early last year, And at that time, the inquiry into the Victorian criminal justice system was announced. Um, I think it was chaired by Fiona Patton. And so I joined to help write a submission to the hearing. And that's how I got involved. And since then, I've been on the team trying to help with other pieces of of editing and writing. And ultimately, the goal is to produce a report that explains how these prisons are funded. Because I think what people often forget is that The prison system is a very lucrative system. Lots of money goes into it. Lots of people make money out of it and for very little outcome. Even if we think of prison as a rehabilitative program or whatever, it actually doesn't work. There's so much research that says that the amount of money you spend on um, someone incarcerated could be better spent on trying to find them stable housing and it will be cheaper at the end of the day, even if you want to look at it from a purely money point of view. So part of what we're doing is to figure out where the money comes from. It's interesting because if that is the case, if it's cheaper to pull or to direct the funds towards like community and towards supporting them with their, you know, social mental needs, why do they continue to do it? Is it is it really down to money? I think it's a popular narrative. I mean, it makes a government sound impressive or strong if they're like, we're putting the bad people away because we're keeping you safe. And people buy into it. 
nobody wants to believe that they're bad. They want to believe that they're better than other people or something. Mm. I mean, I mean, you know, that's what I think. It's a very simplistic way of looking at it, I think. But even if you look at, at the Victorian government's framing of, you know, safety and policing, it's always we're here to save you. We're here to serve you. We're putting these people away. And that's a an easy narrative for people to get behind. A narrative of like, oh, yeah, people are going to jail because of all these disadvantages. Let's help them fix it. It's not, it's not catchy. Yeah. It's not sexy. It makes it sound like the public have to pay extra money for that to happen, where actually that's not the truth. Mm. It sounds like to me sensationalism. Mm. That's right. Okay. So what's next for Justice Map? What do you have in the pipeline? Yeah, so now that we've finished the submission into the hearing, we're just going back to doing the actual report that's been in the works for, for years now on how... Um, you know, to figure out how prisons are funded and, and what's happening in prisons. Um, I joined the project quite late, but, you know, they've been doing it for years now. They've got all these great yarning circles all over the country talking to women in prison um, to figure out what it is like inside. So a lot of it will come out in the report. Hopefully we'll be out end of this year, I think. But, you know, timelines keep shifting because of the pandemic. So <laughs> who knows? I think we cannot talk about incarceration and the problem of prisons without talking about the R word, which is racism. I think it's really important to recognise that the majority of people in prisons at the moment are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And there are lots of reasons that are out there for this that people would say, you know, there's poverty, there's generational trauma, etc. But they often never talk about the racism. It's just outright racism that these People get profiled. Aboriginal kids in prison are there because of a certain profiling situation. They're often over-policed communities. And any discussion about abolition has to start from talking about the roots of where prisons come from in this country, and that's racism. So I just want to give a quick shout-out to you know people that listeners can follow if they want to hear more about this um, Dr. Chelsea Watergo on Twitter. She's a force to be reckoned with. And people who organise the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, Mariki Onis, Tani Onis Williams, Nayuka Gori. Uh, these are the people that come to the top of my mind, but I'm sure I've missed many. But these are the people that listeners should be following and reading about and listening to. And they have the answers. We just have to listen. And that was Anya Sarabhanan from Justice Map. You can learn more about Justice Map by visiting justicemap.org.au. That's justicemap.org.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard a conversation between Anya Saravanan and Ayan Shirwa from Diaspora Blues about the Justice Map Project and their work challenging carceral narratives and over-policing. And don't forget to tune in to Diaspora Blues on Mondays on 3CR. And now we're going to go into another track. This one is Buoyancy by Body Type.
that was Buoyancy by Body Type off their upcoming album, sorry, off their recently released album, Everything is Dangerous, But Nothing is Surprising. Um, absolute banger. Um, really, really good for getting you pumped in the morning. And uh, let's head to a community service announcement thanks to our sponsors at Earth Greetings. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Hi, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm doing Black and Deadly on Fridays from 11 to 12 o'clock. Looking at all the best uh, black and deadly music, entertainers and performers around this country. Join me then from 11 to 12 Fridays, Community Radio, fresh year, 8.55 on the AM dial. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.45 in the morning. And we're now joined by Dr. Benjamin Cook, who's a senior lecturer at RMIT's Center for Urban Research, to discuss the Albanese government's commitment to protect 30% of Australia's land and waters by 2030, what this actually means, and why it needs to go further. Ben, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Uh, so last month... Environment and Water Minister Tanya Plibersek launched the latest five-yearly State of the Environment report, which covered the urgent need for broad environmental reform. And this was accompanied by a reaffirmed, uh, sorry, a reaffirmed commitment to protect 30% of the continent's landmass by 2030. So first of all, can you explain what this 30 by 30 target, which was set by the High Ambition Coalition for Nature and People, refers to, and what protection actually means under this framework? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 30 by 30 refers to the ambition for protecting 30% of Australia's land and 30% of Australia's water by 2030. Um, And this is part of an international uh, agreement and uh, ambition, as you said, which replaces the 2020 target, which was 17%. Um, So it's a global UN uh, framework. Um, the, The main... Uh, relevance and context for Australia is that at present we have protected 22% of the lands and 45% of the waters, which was something that wasn't necessarily mentioned during the announcement of the 30 by 30 target. Um, so we've exceeded some of those ambitions already. Um, but in terms of what protection means, uh, most people are probably familiar with the kind of national park context for protection, and that makes up a significant proportion of the protected areas, but uh, increasingly so there's a range of other categories too. So there's six all up, and that includes things like private freehold land, but also things like native title land and other forms of Indigenous ownership over land in, in different um, in different countries and contexts. Um, so increasingly we're seeing uh, more and more protection coming from the non-government um, estate or not from public land. Um, and that's created a range of different implications. Um, but, yeah, it's 
it's quite different in terms of uh, place to place. So the implications of um, these targets and what protection means country by country is quite different. Mm, yeah, and I mean, you did get a little bit into some of the, I guess, the, the range of different bodies that are responsible for engaging in this in these protective activities. So I'm wondering what the current uh, primary mechanisms of securing and maintaining this kind of protection over so-called Australia's land and waters is, and, uh, you know, in terms of the variety of who's responsible and how it's funded as well. Yeah, so um, that, that's been changing quite a bit over recent decades and is a, a real area of kind of tension and controversy. But, um, yeah, particularly in terms of land, we're talking about, you know, over 160 million hectares of the continent's uh, terrestrial surface that's protected overall. Um, a lot of that traditionally has been funded by federal and state governments quite directly. Um, we're now at a point where 50% of our protected area is Indigenous protected areas, um, mainly on native title lands. Um, that receives um, some funding or a degree of funding from government um, People may have been aware and conscious of various announcements for funding um, over the years for Indigenous protected areas. It's often, um, you know, very last-minute, short-term funding cycles and, and quite insecure. Um, but increasingly so, we're seeing uh, a lot of large environmental NGOs involved in protected areas too. So that's both purchasing and managing lands. Um, for example, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy owns... I think it's a bit over 12 million hectares, so about twice, owns or manages, I should say, about twice the size of Tassie, just about. So, you know, it's a huge amount of land that's been managed um, or owned by um, environmental NGOs, and a lot of the, the funding for that work has been um, seeded by government, but there's a huge proportion that is philanthropic um, money and is also uh, money that's funded by participation in various carbon markets, or increasingly sort of for-profit conservation ventures where, you know, um, they're trying to invest in things like um, regenerative agriculture as a way of kind of presenting a return on investment and then funneling some of that those um, uh, that revenue into conservation work. So it's a, it's a pretty mixed bag um, and an increasing array of actors involved in the, in the funding of protected areas. Yeah, and I think it it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, the sort of devolution of responsibilities across the community sector, right? Like there's some areas that the government's responsible for. There's some areas that uh, really rely on philanthropic funding. There are some areas that are run by indigenous communities and community-controlled organizations that are sorely underfunded. Um, and it doesn't sort of speak to a coherent, overarching strategy. Um, no. Yeah. So I also wanted to go a little bit further into unpacking some of the colonial assumptions that underpin this notion of protection, particularly when it comes to the sort of mainstream cultural imaginary. And I think this is like very much come from a sort of, I mean, where I see it most uh, most prevalent is uh, U.S. parks and wildlife kind of model around national parks as human free spaces and you know, this idea that nat uh, nature has to be protected in a way that is um, sequestered off from human engagement. So I was wondering here whether we could speak to the importance and role of First Nations land management through Indigenous protected areas and ranger groups, and more broadly, why First Nations sovereignty and political authority are a crucial aspect of this environmental management as well. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a really it's a really key point, um, and I think we're at a bit of a moment in time where asking these kinds of questions is is incredibly important. Um, so people might have seen that last week the New South Wales government committed to returning 10% of national parks in, in New South Wales um, to uh, Indigenous ownership in, over the next few years. We've had a number of big conservation estates um, commit to returning land to First Nations as well. Um, and in many cases, these are positive developments, but the New South Wales one is a classic example of why we need to really understand and be able to critique the proposals here because it, it's, it's as you say, it's the, the understanding of how um, sovereignty and authority and self-determination plays into some of these things too is critical because the New South Wales government's proposal is to um, require, um, well, to, to basically make um, the, the handing back of land conditional on maintaining its function as a national park exactly as it was. Mm. Uh, public access has to remain the same. Um, it's un- unclear at this point how the New South Wales government would fund um, our First Nations to, to continue the work on national parks, but also the, the capacity to actually use those lands for a, a range of other revenue raising and economic opportunities is clearly going to be constrained. And so, as you said, with the <laughs> with the, um, the the health and other services sectors seeing similar patterns, it's this devolution of responsibility, but it's also accumulating responsibilities for First Nations without mm-hmm. any capacity to raise revenue or to determine what the actual future of those lands is going to be. And, and revenue is such a massive thing because you know it, it's it's easy to read some of these proposals, particularly by some governments who don't have great records and funding conservation in a range of different forms as further opportunities to devolve responsibility um, and to not have to deal with the challenges of um, working and managing those spaces. Um, but uh, I think overall that in, in Australia we have a, a picture where um, Indigenous protected areas and, as you say, ranger groups as well, which is well over 100, over 120 now, I think, uh, ranger groups are doing um, incredible work in a range of different contexts and, you know, they contribute well over 50% of, of the, uh, the National Reserve System now. Um, but in terms of federal funding, it's funded at a, you know, a, for the IPAs, it's funded at a few cents per hectare per year mm. um, and supplementing uh, that revenue through carbon markets and a range of other forms as well has become a necessity and you just see this accumulation of responsibility without the kinds of um, opportunities for revenue raising and self-determination that um, Indigenous peoples have been calling for when it comes to conservation. And it's such a critical context, too, because the, the decolonial potential of it is so evident with land handbacks, um, the capacity for, for fostering and enabling uh, the healing of country, um, it's it's so direct and tangibly relevant that you know if it if it could be done right and it could be done well and if government um, acted in good faith in these contexts then the potential is is really significant. Yeah, and I think also kind of speaks to uh, this 
lack of political will to to recognize the interconnected nature of i guess like the the cultural environmental and political concerns that are all at play here and sort of emphasizing the environmental um at the expense of of those other really key concerns for first nations people and um I guess I was wondering if we could turn to what needs to change in terms of government approaches towards protected areas and beyond. You know, funding is obviously a key issue that we've already discussed. But considering that there's no way to simply bracket off these spaces from the harmful impacts of extractive industries, land clearing and so on that goes on in adjacent areas. So, for example, how do the government's environmental reform commitments here align with concerningly inadequate targets in other key areas like emissions reduction, where, you know, as we saw last night, uh, the Greens will be supporting that 43% target. Yeah, um, I guess the short answer is they, they, they don't really. Um, <laughs> they, they, they perpetuate this exact thing um, that you've mentioned and the fact that the response to the state of the environment report, which was, you know, an all-encompassing kind of snapshot of of decline across a range of different areas and, and context, to sort of to to make the the headline statement the protection of 30 by 30 uh, is concerning in, in the sense of it does seem like doubling down on this idea of well we can, as you say, section off these little, you know, hermetically sealed bubbles of um, of ecologies away from um, everything else, and that will be sufficient and okay. Um, but yeah, as you say, it's it's what's happening. It's what's happening outside, you know, mm-hmm. as well as the funding inside. But it's it's the resource extraction outside. It's it's um, the the relative lack of of ambition on climate, and the fact that there's all these other pressures and factors that that you can't seal off um, from protected areas. But I think it goes back to to what you were saying about uh, the importance of uh, First Nations uh, sovereignty, and, and it, I think there's just a, an opportunity here to sort of to say that, well, you know, there's a way of of managing country that isn't about sort of parceling it up into different tenures and um, seeing it as these various categories um, and putting it into different boxes, um, but about seeing the connections and the coherence across landscape and to understand that. Threats come from ranges, a range of different places, um, and to have a, a, a much stronger understanding of um, the landscape as connected, um, which means responding in a range of different ways. It means it being serious about um, no new uh, fossil fuel ventures. Um, it means being serious about the impacts of, of industrial agriculture, um, and you know, there's obviously examples of where. Um, some positive initiatives are happening, um, but it, overall it means taking a much more coherent and cohesive perspective on, on what's happening and what the response needs to be. Yeah, and I think it, 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 does, it does make me think about the sort of, I don't know, the, the long durée of Australia's uh, failure to engage substantively on, on climate policy where there really has been um, a sort of you know, it's not my problem because it's not happening here, it's particularly as we've seen with sort of the Pacific Islands and, um, you know, rising sea levels and the effects of climate change there. Um, and, 
Yeah, I think um, hopefully, you know, with a change of government, there's the possibility to push a little bit more. But obviously, none of this none of this is guaranteed in, in terms of in terms of action. So where can people find out more about Australia's progress in relation to this 30 by 30 target, acknowledging that that really is just applicable to, to land since we've already <laughs> met the water target? Um, and support pushes for a more expansive approach to uh, to these kinds of issues that we've been discussing. Yeah, um, so the the government does, uh, the federal government does report on its progress towards these um, international agreements. So even things like just looking up the, the national um, reserve system. Um, I, I, th- I think we're at the point now where the, the federal government is starting to overhaul some of the information that hasn't been updated on some of those websites for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, so just just even basic information like that to understand what the breakdown of our, our reserve system is. But I, I suppose the other thing too is, um, you know, there are some really positive examples of things that are happening. Um, Trust for Nature in Victoria have committed to handing back a, a huge property in uh, the north uh, west um, called Ned's Corner. Um, Bush Heritage have um, have got a great uh, partnership arrangement uh, with Judge Awarung, um on a property in. Uh, um which is, you know, a genuine partnership of enabling um, healing country. Um, and, and I think the main thing to, to sort of to think about is where, where these um, really positive efforts are happening to support them because, um, you know, whether you're a donor or you've been a past donor to some of the big NGOs, um, you know, sometimes the internal politics of those organisations mean that, you know, Support for some of these things can be tenuous. Um, so, where they exist, I think um, finding opportunities to support them, making that support known, um, even things like finding out, you know, if you have a, a favourite or a regular haunt in terms of protected areas that you might go to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what are the what are the management arrangements there? What are the funding arrangements? Are there First Nations people involved? Do they want to be involved? How could they be supported in that way? How could you? Um, align with any efforts that they might be progressing in that area. Um, so there's opportunities, I think, to get you know reasonably active. Um, there hasn't been a lot of um, activism around this type of thing um, coming from um, you know particularly settler colonial conservation spaces. So the more that we can do uh, in that, um, the better. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to also provide a few a few links and things of interest that, that could maybe go up with. Um, with the show description too, if people are keen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we would really appreciate that. We'll pop those in uh, with the podcast for the show, which will be up later today. But look, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about this. You've definitely got me thinking about a lot of stuff, including how I really need to organize an interview on water management because that's a whole different beast. Um, yes. But yeah, thank you so much. Um, and I hope you have a great day. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for the invite. And that was Dr. Benjamin Cook, a senior lecturer at RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, who joined us to discuss the Albanese government's commitment to protect 30% of Australia's land and waters by 2030, what this actually means and why it needs to go further. 
Now, the government's commitment to this target was reaffirmed by Minister for the Environment and Water, Tanya Plibersek, alongside last month's launch of the five-yearly State of the Environment report. And Ben and several colleagues recently co-authored an article in the conversation breaking down the 30 by 30 target, and we'll be linking to that in our show notes, along with some other information and links that Ben mentioned just before. So you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Wah carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldum Chongo Edwards, for Balamwah, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing I was only 16 years when I met my brother. He looked at me and his face without the joy. After the tears, we talked about our mother. Held me close and whispered. Father boy, I remember drinking wine and talking with my brother. I had a drink and he didn't think I should. I told him I could handle it and I said, Get another sitting in the kitchen in Dyke Street, Collingwood. We take a walk to Fitzroy early in the morning when sometimes family life became a strain. Stand outside the cellars, greeting friends we knew were coming. Wrapped a quart and walked to Charcoal Lane. I remember sitting in the laneway with my brother, sharing cigarettes. And company Drinking with some friends We knew 
Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. That was F Troop by Archie Roach. Once again, sending our sincere condolences to his family, to his community, and all who were touched by his incredibly staunch message and fight for justice. And uh, that is off his uh, 2019 album, Tell Me Why, which was、uh, an accompaniment to his memoir. And、uh, we might go into another community service announcement. This one's about the Dwelling Justice Forum, which is coming up later this month. Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. The Forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups. To strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August, at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narn. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in NARM. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Center for Urban Research, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we're going to head into another track. This one is from Sampa the Great's 
new upcoming album, As Above, So Below. This is the new single, Bona. absolute banger that was the new one from sampa the great the third new single from her upcoming album as above so below that was bona really showing off some south african vibes there um and pretty exciting i think um i think there's a sampa the great is opening for billy eilish is that is that correct Leela? am i yes am I right there? that is correct um so yeah, I think uh, absolutely massive. I think people should get down to that show if they can. I believe it's in Brisbane. I say get down to that show like it's just something at a local thing. I'm sure it's probably already <laughs> sold out. But we might go to our next interview now. Next up, in recognition of Homelessness Week this week, we will be speaking to Reggie Chang. Youth homelessness remains an urgent issue in Victoria. With poor access to housing and increasing rent prices, young people leaving out of home care are particularly vulnerable. Reggie joins us today to share their experience of homelessness after leaving care, as well as their role with the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare. Good morning, Reggie. We're so happy to have you on the show today. Uh, I wanted to start off 
by asking you to introduce yourself. Maybe you could begin by telling us a bit more about what you do and what you love. Uh, hi there, I'm Reggie, a queer, non-binary, neurodivergent person of colour with a lived experience of out-of-home care and homelessness. I work for the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare as lived experience consultant, where I'm working on a project called Empathy and Action, which aims to deliver training to stakeholders and people who work directly with care leavers, as well as the lived experience mentorship program as a podcast producer. On the side, I am a youth work student at RMIT University, I'm a Venture Scout leader for Fourth Project Scout Group, and I also help out with various other organizations like Rotary International and Melbourne Gamers. It sounds like you have an extremely wholesome and busy schedule, Reggie. Um, today, you've generously offered to share your lived experience as a young person who has gone through homelessness after leaving out-of-home care. Would you be willing to talk us through your journey of care and homelessness and the biggest lasting impacts this has had for you? Um, so I left out of home, well I left home with my biological family at 16 when I entered foster care. After a period of moving between different foster care placements, I stayed at one for year 12 BCE. After I turned 18, I had a falling out with my foster carer and was eventually removed from that foster home, which spiraled me into homelessness. There wasn't a leaving care plan set up for me, which made it hard to rely on any pre-existing plans. During my homelessness phase, it was split into two periods, the first being set up to live with a scout family for the first few months after I turned 18. I eventually moved to a share house in Mount Waverley, but a combination of unstable housing and mental health decline, I slipped into homelessness. On the eve of my 19th birthday, I was homeless and visiting Front Yard Youth Services and going to several youth refuges, staying at backpackers and doing wherever I could to stay alive. On a note, my biological family didn't want me. They called the police when I came over and said I was an intruder. A combination of being queer and having mental health issues contributed to that. I connected with a mental health support service called NEMI when I was living in Mount Waverley. And a youth and a worker from there called me to check in when I was at Front Yard. And I told her I was homeless and on the streets of Melbourne. That worker from NEMI was the one who organised social housing for me, which felt like a winning a lottery ticket, a housing I'm still living in today. Um, I don't know, I never slept rough. However, there is a photo on my personal Instagram of Flinders Street Station. It's the first photo I took on that Instagram profile, and I took it while staying the night in the city. I consumed coffee and Red Bull to stay awake, and I didn't have to, so I didn't have to sleep rough on the street. And I would catch up on rest at Front Yard Youth Services. That sounds like an incredibly challenging time. Thank you so much for sharing that experience. It seems like LGBTQI plus and young people of colour face disproportionate challenges when experiencing homelessness. As a member of these intersecting groups, what made you feel most supported when you were facing these challenges you just described? And do you think there needs to be more specific resources uh, aimed at queer and young people of colour available in the future? Um, when I was homeless, there weren't any other Asians who shared the same experience of culture, which made it hard to form an identity or friendships with other people. From what I remember, the most supporting aspects, if any, were that front yard youth services were super supportive over the whole situation. 
I think there needs to be resources for people of color facing homelessness, especially from diverse backgrounds and those young people who don't know where to go or who to access support from. I think this is really prevalent around um, young people with like differing uh, language barriers uh, that may have issues accessing traditional support services provided to general youth. Um, and also, Asians find it hard to look out for support since there are varying levels of shame within the diaspora, which further elevates the stigma of homelessness. Yeah, um, it, I think there really does need to be some more pointed um, support networks. And it's, yeah, you've shown incredible resilience um, accessing those resources and while being further isolated as uh, someone of Asian diaspora and um, queer as well. So lastly, I thought for the people listening, um, people, young people who might be struggling with housing access or other listeners who are struggling with housing access, do you have something you'd like to share directly to them or any resources that helped you out that you would like to recommend? Um, yeah, so if you're a young person who's currently facing homelessness right now, there are support services out there. The one I mentioned is Front Yard Youth Services. They'll help you find temporary accommodation to get you through the, the phase of homelessness currently. They are located in, in the Melbourne CBD on 19th Street. If you're looking for housing, try to get yourself on the Victorian Housing Register for social or public housing. It's basically permanent housing for yourself and your partner if you have one. However, there's a note there and that there is a long wait list because of the insufficient social housing development available. Our governments need to advocate for more public and social housing opportunities since young people with experience of out-of-home care, including kinship, foster and residential care, are at far greater risk of homelessness than other young people, and many have no parents or guardians to support them while they find their feet, and many have experienced trauma that increases the likelihood of mental health problems, substance abuse and family violence. I would like to also advocate that the Home Stress Program that I was an ambassador for successfully advocated to extend the provision of accommodation allowance and flexible funding for care leavers at 21, giving young people in care far greater stability for three additional years. All states and territories, except for New South Wales, have now committed to implementing the Home Stretch Program and extending care to 21, giving many young pre-experienced Australians additional support to prevent homelessness after they leave care. But more is needed, particularly to help care experience young people with mental health problems or those from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds or those from LGBTIQA plus community to find housing and support services. I think if there's one person I'd like to add in also is that young people um, are the future um, and we need to make sure that we can provide whatever support that we can to help them get through this difficult stage of life, especially if they are homeless. Um, and I think also that with young people, when, you know, if I had, if I could go back, you know, 10 years ago and tell myself this, I'd probably say this to, to hold tight, you know. I think life puts you on many trials and tribulations and, you know, you, you form almost like, uh, like an identity out of it to some degree. You form this kind of like instinct about where you should go or who you should talk to. And I think, you know, developing those instincts when you're young will help you further in your life as you grow older. 
Yeah, it sounds like you've done a lot of really important self-led learning um, during that period in your life that you're now using to support other people who have parallel experiences. So thank you for sharing those resources. We'll make sure to put them in our show notes today. Thank you. Reggie, thank you so much for sharing. We really appreciate having you on today. Um, I hope you have a lovely rest of your week. Thank you. I hope you have a lovely rest of your week and enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you. Bye. And that was Reggie Chang, uh, who spoke with Leela just now uh, in recognition of Homelessness Week this week about youth homelessness, which remains an urgent issue in Victoria. And Reggie shared their experiences of homelessness after leaving out-of-home care, as well as their role with the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I think we've got time to go to just one more track before the end of the show. So this one is a little one, short one. Um, and this is Crash by Steven featuring Tommy Richmond.
was Crash by Stephen featuring Tommy Richmond. Um, and we're coming up to the end of the show on 3CR Thursday breakfast this morning. So we might just take you through a quick rundown of what we covered today. So first up, you heard Anya Saravanan speaking with Ayan Sherwa from Diaspora Blues about the Justice Map Project and their work challenging carceral narratives and over-policing. And Anya is a Tamil woman and community lawyer working in summary crime and family violence. And after that, you heard Dr. Benjamin Cook, who's a senior lecturer at RMIT's Center for Urban Research. And Ben joined us to discuss the Albanese's government commitment to protect 30% of Australia's land and waters by 2030, what this actually means and why it needs to go further. And the government's commitment to this target was reaffirmed by Minister for the Environment and Water, Tanya Plibersek, alongside last month's launch of the five-yearly State of the Environment report. And in recognition of Homelessness Week this week, we spoke to Reggie Chang. Reggie Chang is a... Sorry. <laughs> brain... Malfunction. (laughs) Incredible. Just go with it. (laughs) Reggie Chang works with the Center for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare, and they joined us to speak about uh, youth homelessness and their experience of out of home or, or homelessness after leaving out of home care. And they shared some incredible resources, incredibly important resources that we will add to our show notes today. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. And once again, we did want to send our sincere condolences to the family of Uncle Archie Roach, who, uh, you know, the whole country is grieving at the moment. And he's left such a seriously, um, like such an incredible impact on the 3CR community as well. And the area that we broadcast out of Fitzroy was his home for many, many years. Um, and so, yeah, thinking of you and um, so glad we got to play some of your music on our show. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.